Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. Hello and welcome. Today's guest is Brian Stewart. Brian is a board member of the San Antonio Zoo, former board member of the San Antonio Public Library Foundation or System, uh, a board member of Planned Parenthood of Texas. He's a dad, he's a husband, he's a local injury lawyer, and I won't hold it against him, but at one point he was a uh, defense lawyer. And for those who don't know, that means he's the guy that tries to keep people from getting justice in the courthouse. Uh, not criminal defense. Those guys are still good. Uh, we've asked uh, Brian on here today to talk about a few things, but one thing he's going to talk about uh, is this, the, the fight with the state between the state and Planned Parenthood. Uh, this is not a political show, and it's not going to be, but it is something that's happening in the state of Texas right now where Planned Parenthood and the state of Texas are in a fight regarding medical procedures that can be performed during the coronavirus COVID-19 shutdown. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. We're going to talk to him a little bit about the zoo and what's going on there. One thing he wishes I would talk to him about is Duke. Uh, he's a blue devil, but I refuse to talk about Duke um, for a variety of reasons. Mostly, I could not even tell you what state they were in if I was forced to on Jeopardy because I choose to not know that kind of information because Duke has no bearing on me. Another fun fact, Brian Stewart has a vanity license plate everybody should know about, and it, I think it's San Antonio Blue Devil or, or something like that. I mean, I'm not going to give it any credit. We'll get to you, Brian. He's itching to talk. Brian, we're going to start like we started with, with everybody, a, a few questions to start, top 10 questions to give some color to who you are. Do you have any pets? I have two dogs currently. Are those your mother's dogs? No, my mother has two puppies. She's got two chocolate labs, but we have two dogs. My wife, child, and I have two dogs. Do you also have two puppies at your house right now? I do. Okay. So you've got two dogs and you are, um, I don't know, a way station for two black labs right now? I, chocolate labs. I, yeah, they're chocolate labs. I feel like I'm a foster with benefits. I think that's how it's, how I would characterize your it. Your daughter, Grace, clearly thinks there's benefits involved. I saw the pictures. My daughter, Grace, knows that those are her dogs, and that's why <laughs> she was able to name them Colby. That's right. Not Kobe. Colby, Bryant, Stewart, <laughs> and Hunter Bush Stewart. Good-looking dogs. Is your mom going to stick to those names? I think the dogs may have alternative names, and that's okay, like Gnomes de Guerre. Well, I hope your daughter still calls them these random names years down the road as she sees them. She will. She really doesn't care what other people think. All right. What is your, I hate when people ask me, I've get friends that'll call and say, you eat out a lot, which I don't know if it's a compliment or not, but they'll say, what's your favorite restaurant in town? That's a terrible question, but what is your favorite restaurant right now? So if you were going to go eat this week, what's the spot that you're into right now? Sure. I mean, part of that is obviously we're, we're in different times. So we're all trying to do our best to, to help and aid these restaurants that, you know, they're, they're facing some dramatic and dramatic and horrible times. I love going to Beto's just because I love the people. I also like going to, um, well, Beto's. I'm going to stop there. The empanadas? 
Isn't that what's sort of the whole thing? package? It's I, a whole package. I, I'm pretty sure I've never eaten there. That is on you. I mean, I've been there late at night no, when no, like no. the adult kickball teams get off and they're partying there, but which is an actual thing, but I've never eaten food there. Again, um, I don't want to delve too deeply into your personal life, but I'm not around many adult kickball players. I'm simply out looking for a good meal. <laughs> if you my, go to Beto's, you are. With my family, <laughs> and we're probably gone by the time you derelicts roll in. Do you also eat at Taco Garage a lot? Because it's in that corridor. No. Do you I remember don't. when Shoe Yu was still open? Absolutely. Ugh. Absolutely. Okay, so Beto's. I mean, I really would... You could have given me 50 choices, and I would have never thought Beto's would be your go-to spot to eat. But, you know, to each their own. Uh, next question, what is your hidden gem in San Antonio? I tell people, hey, San Antonio, you're coming to visit. These are great spots. But if you want a Ph.D. in San Antonio tourism, there's a few things, and probably Ph.D. is a little over the top to say, like the Japanese tea gardens. But there's a few of these great little hidden gems that I didn't know for probably at least a year or two living here that when I went to, I thought, how on earth did I not know? What's your favorite hidden gem? Okay, my favorite hidden gem um, is connected to my childhood, and it's the old white family home, which has become a part of um, the San Antonio city system of parks. And it's at the bottom near Salado Creek, and it started out as a home where Jack White um, – and his father, who was the mayor of San Antonio in the 50s, they had carved out about 40 to 50 acres right off Salado Creek, right north of I-35. It's a beautiful location. And when we were f- kids, third, fourth, fifth grade, um, the whites lived there. Jack, um, Karen, and their children, Jack and Scott, lived there. And it was like being in the country in the middle of San Antonio. And it's someplace I still try to go as often as possible because it reminds me of those times and it's still a beautiful, beautiful location. What is it now? It has um, become a part of the Salado Creek Tobin run area. Um, it goes so, all the way up to, what is that little? It goes up to McAllister Park. And Los Barrios. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it goes beyond, it goes behind Los Barrios. Yeah. And it's, I'm not sure if the actual home is open. I haven't been in the home, but the original home that I remember from the late seventies is there and it looks the same way. And it uh, reminds me of some really good times. You should tell Jack White of the White Stripes about this. He's into that kind of kitschy stuff. He might. The Jack White that I know, who is my old friend, is older than that Jack White. And he probably doesn't play guitar as well. But you're right. My favorite Jack White story is they had a uh, neighborhood barbecue. And the neighbor said there was some random guy that lived behind a gated fence that they had never seen. And at the barbecue, this dude's walking around who's pale with long hair. And then they all realize, oh, that's the new guy. Oh, my God, that's Jack White. So he just showed up to a neighborhood barbecue with nobody else. I always like that story. I like it. Outside involvement. We've covered Planned Parenthood. We've covered the zoo. We've covered the library. Any other things in San Antonio that you're involved with? Satla? In San Antonio. Um or the state. I, sure. Or the nation. Oh, Duke. So here's what I do. Um, probably for the last six years, I've been the chair of the Duke alumni interviewers, which means that at least in San Antonio and sometimes south, sometimes all the way to Laredo, um, we try to coordinate interviews and help 
students get into that prestigious university in North Carolina, really sorry you didn't understand that Duke was in North Carolina. Did you say prestigious? Did you learn that there? Prestigious. Because I, was, no, I said prestigious. No, I learned up. it before that okay. because you know, we're going to talk about that too. Um, so obviously I'm, I'm involved in Duke admissions and on April the 1st, Duke admitted, I think it was seven students, seven local students, and I hope that they all matriculate there so that I can see them this summer at my party, which is the Duke going away party. Um, before that, I'm also involved on the executive committee of the Alumni Council of Deerfield Academy in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to attend that f- prestigious prep school and am still very involved in that. Um, I have been on the board of San Antonio Academy where I attended, and I was the Alumni Council president of San Antonio Academy. So I'm committed to education, all of its forms, although it appears at all these private schools, but... It's name-dropping, it sounds like. Is that education? But more importantly, um, my parents were educators. My dad was a principal at the Negro School in Stanton, and my mother was the sixth grade teacher at that school. And it's a great story, and if you actually want to Google it, 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 you can Google Christine Smith Stewart, who gave a deposition on July the 17th, 1965, because um, the school was shut down because they didn't have the assets to continue the separate but equal school system school systems in Stanton, and they didn't offer my parents a job. So as part of that litigation, my mother had to give the deposition on July the 17th. She then jumped in her car and drove to San Antonio, which is where my parents had decided to live, and the next day at 5.55 or 5.56, depending upon who you ask, I was born. Huh. I didn't know that about you. It's a good story. You need to, you need to ask Christine. She's got, she's got a ton of them. I would love to. Would she come on the podcast? No. Okay. Um, I also still want to point out, my parents were both educators as well, but you don't hear me dropping the names of the fancy schools I went to, like Texas A&M or Baylor or Burke Burnett High School. I think you just did. Okay. Well, uh, any odd hobbies that you have? I know you run half marathons, which means you're half crazy, but what else? I think the the best sport that I play, to the extent I'm allowed to play it by my wife and child, is ultimate frisbee. I still love ultimate. Um, it's a thing that I will wake up, even at my advanced stage, and wonder how good I could have been if someone had simply <laughs> turned me on to ultimate earlier. Uh, last spring, I went to see... One of my best uh, friends in college, her son, plays for the UNC uh, Ultimate Team, which is probably ranked number one in the nation. And we spent two days watching them play, and I honestly thought that I could play again. I was wrong. Are they only ranked number one because there's literally no other school in America that plays Ultimate Frisbee? You are so sheltered from the things that matter most to many of us. Okay, other than sports, do you have any hobbies other than sports? I mean, clearly... You're athletic. You play ultimate frisbee and run half marathons. What about things that other people can relate to? I have a five-year-old. Okay. Her sports are my sports. We had piano class the other day. We had pip-hop class the other day. Um, I do things and move in certain ways that I'm not designed to move in at this point, but I do it because I love her. Okay, next question. Do you own ALF on DVD? I own 
every episode and every season of ALF, and I'm working through ALF with my daughter who doesn't understand why her dad is laughing. Is this because you hate cats? has nothing to do with Lucky the Cat or Mel Mack and how they treated cats. I think cats are a symbol, but if I delve too deeply into this, I don't think you'll understand. So did Egyptians. Oh, well, that's good because Mel Mack is a country that, I'm sorry, a planet that probably preceded this planet if you're keeping track at home. I'm, I'm not. Uh, worst trend you followed when you were younger? Worst trend I followed when I was younger, I think when I was in the sixth grade during the summer, I, hair, I had my hair braided. And I know that there are photographs of this somewhere, but I haven't seen any. But I remember even at the time thinking, this is bad. I also had a perm once. I think that was closer to seventh grade. But again, there aren't any photos. What kind of braids? Um, not Iverson-esque. More Kawhi as oh. like a second year, sort of straight and not even even. Uh, they, were, they were kind of a mess, but I loved them. That's a good way to put it, because Kawhi never looked as put together as Iverson did. He didn't. Yeah. He didn't. And I can say now, I mean, he's he was better, though. I, I think you can say, and I was going to say, and I can't even say he was better, but I, I think you can say that. I mean, I, I'm going to say that. He's a better player. Who was a better player? Kawhi is a better player than Iverson was. Well, that is your recency bias. If you could remember back to 2001 when this 5'9 person was playing 41 minutes a night and averaging 26 to 27 points, he was awesome. I like how you're looking at paper as though you brought your statistics. No, that, that's, that lives within me. That's what old people do. He was awesome, but Kawhi is, I mean, Kawhi might be a transcendent player. I mean, he, he shut what, down What does he transcend? I mean, in a, in a day and age in which there's really nobody that changes the game, Kawhi might be one of those players that does. He is he has gotten better year to year in a way that almost nobody gets better in the NBA because they already start at such a high level. I mean, LeBron started at such a high level and got incrementally better. Kawhi continues to get better if they'll play him. If he'll quit sitting out, I think is the best way to put this. Well, the thing is, as a competitor competitor you would expect him to play and want to play like and Allen Iverson Kawhi's never going to average 41 minutes Should for he? a season okay we're getting off track for now. a season okay when did you move how long have you lived in San Antonio I was born and raised in San Antonio I was born at the Knicks hospital I know my doctor which is now going to be a apartment or something right if at best it should be torn down really it's kind of still a nice building not a fan. Okay. Uh, favorite Fiesta event? Oh, it's got to be King William. I mean, King William is the event where um, my wife and child can enjoy themselves. We can go from house to house and laugh at people and, and feel uh, a part of that community. It's a fun community down there. I don't live down there, but if I had the opportunity, I would. Do you know the Hill Law Firm was the first aid tent sponsor last year and this upcoming year? Since I didn't spend any time in the first aid tent, well, maybe. I didn't know that. If you did, at least you know it's got a good sponsor. That's good. I hope you got some mass down there. Last question. What is the single biggest change you've seen in San Antonio in the last 50 years? Assuming you're 50. I don't know with you. I'm 54, but thanks for that. I think the single biggest change 
was the change from the government where the Good Government League ran this town to the current structure. And how would you describe the Good Government League? The Good Government League looks like it sounds. It was government of this town by a really small section and portion of this town, and it was um, restricted. And I think now with the ascendance of various groups, the government is much more representative of the people as opposed to certain zip codes. I had a recent um, experience with a man who's probably about 60, and he explained to me how we don't understand how much good was done by, and he named like six families. And right. I just assume, I, he never said good governments, but I assume that's who he's talking about. They were, And I can probably tick those families off. But without ticking those families off, I won't. But yes, that, that's how it was. Yeah. And if you look around and you look at highways and malls and things, you can sort of figure out who they were. But it was, it was a different time. And I mean, there was, there was some obvious patronism and some, some forward thinking in some of those groups. But there was a point where the rest of us needed to weigh in. I think this is probably a story told throughout America, really. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was going to spend more time talking to you about a few things, but, um, I want to get to sort of the meat of what we were going to talk about today. Clearly you're accomplished. I mean, did y'all hear he went to Deerfield? So clearly you've got a background, but one thing you do do as a volunteer basis is you're on the board of directors for Planned Parenthood, such a political hot potato. I mean, such a weird lightning bolt for everybody politically. Nobody's in between on that, it seems like, anymore, even though you get sort of a strange crossover of kind of wealthy conservatives, wives and or women who do kind of cross that spectrum. So it's just sort of this strange thing. And when I, when I was in college, I, you know, we would help sort of help girls get from their cars to the front door because there were people screaming and yelling. And I was fresh off the turnip truck and I just thought that's mean. I mean, I really didn't have any grand political like feeling about it other than a buddy of mine did it. And I thought, this is crazy. What are you yelling at these poor girls for? What's going on in Texas right now, kind of cutting, cutting everything short is governor Abbott said, Hey, we are going to cut non-essential medical services Attorney General Paxton says, okay, everybody, that also specifically means, and I am declaring that abortion is a non-essential service. Planned Parenthood of Texas sued the state of Texas, and it landed on the desk of Lee Yakel, who was a George W. Bush appointee, a federal judge in Austin, Texas. Talk to me about, generally, what are the arguments from both sides on that? Sure. Um, and the timeline you provided is amazing because... This all started back on March the 22nd, 2020. I'm going to go back and go through it a little bit because I think it's, it's important for everyone who's listening to this to try to frame this because it's happening even as we speak. So March 22nd, 2020, um, Governor Abbott issues Executive Order GA-09. Jokingly, we say get abortion, but that's not actually what it meant. But it the executive order related to hospital capacity during this disaster, the COVID-19 disaster. And it was in effect from March the 22nd, 2020 to April 21st, 2020. So remember that because you've got a, you've got a month window where this is in place. And essentially what it says is, hey, 
obviously there's a crisis. And during this crisis, we don't want to take resources away from our hospitals and our healthcare providers. Generally, I think we would all agree with that. March 23rd, things changed. March 23rd, Ken Paxton, who was the Attorney General, issued a press release. And here's the title of the press release. And you can see where it's going as soon as the title hit. Let me stop you real quick because Abbott's order said non-essential services are suspended, but he made no attempt to say what essential, what was essential and what was not fair. He didn't identify it. He didn't um, make it clear. It was the general order from the governor, which would obviously allow others to interpret it and limit it if they chose. Fast forward a full 24 hours, Paxton steps in, the attorney general, and he says what? Sure. Ken Paxton, attorney general, issues a press release. A press release. And the press release is based upon the executive order. And the press release, which is titled, Healthcare Professionals and Facilities, comma, including abortion providers, comma, must immediately stop all medically unnecessary surgeries and procedures to preserve resources to fight COVID-19 pandemic. So obviously he wanted to make sure that abortion providers in the state of Texas knew that this was going to touch them. And by touch them, I mean he threatened them with jail time. Uh, He invoked certain procedures within the Texas Medical Board, which essentially said you could get a $1,000 fine, you could lose your license, and um, your ability to practice medicine. And Ken Paxton's a very uh, avowed, well-known opponent of abortion services, abortion service providers, or choice efforts. Fair? He is, without quoting him, an opponent of reproductive rights. I will say that. Fair enough. March 23rd, his pointed order comes out. Planned Parenthood, who generally across America is not only a facility that provides almost exclusively non-abortion related services for women and low-income people that need medical services, but they also provide sort of the voice in the discussion politically and legally regarding abortion and choice services. Fair? Absolutely. So they... They sued the state of Texas for essentially shutting down and or threatening to shut down and or threatening to fine. Fair? Well, it goes beyond threatening because for a period of time, abortion in Texas was banned. And today, it is currently banned. So let's go sort of, th- sort of through the timeline. When did Planned Parenthood sue the state of Texas regarding this March 23rd order? Okay. Let's, there's one step in between that's okay. important. Um, in response to the March 23rd, 2020 press release, the Texas Medical Board enacted the emergency amendment to Title 22, which essentially said, if you violate the press release slash executive order, you are now a criminal, which means I can take your ticket, which huh. means I can take your license. So that was the teeth that Paxton needed. Why would they get involved in this? Because they had to. Okay. I mean, the, the way this works is you have the attorney general, attorney general making moves and making decisions, but to enforce it, you have to have the actual bodies, the n- medical board, uh, the nursing board, who holds the licenses for these individuals. You have to get them involved because they control what can actually be done. So... March 25th, 
So we're two days after the press release. March 25th. Uh, well, let me go back. Is, sure. is it a political thing that gets the Texas Medical Board involved, or do they just, I mean, take abortion out of it. Do they generally kind of get on board with whatever direction they get from the government? I think the best way of putting this is if you criminalize certain conduct, the Texas Medical Board is going to respond and say, if this is criminal conduct, you do not have or cannot have a license to practice medicine. Okay, that's so same way with what we do as lawyers. If the state says, hey, if you represent Joe Blow, it's a felony, then our state bar is going to come out and say, hey, if you represent Joe Blow, you lose your license because it's a felony. Right. Similar? Right. Okay, so Texas Medical Board wasn't necessarily necessarily taking some large political position outside of what they just generally do uh, in relation to what's been criminalized. Sure, they're okay. going to follow the leader. The only difference is you don't have legislation that's criminalized this. You have an executive order which says one thing. You have a press release which interprets it a certain way. And in that press release, you have comments made about the criminalization of this behavior. Okay. So you don't have anyone that's actually said, okay, this is valid. This, um, this meets constitutional scrutiny. You simply have the attorney general saying, if you do this, it's criminal. But under the emergency powers within the state, I, I think, I'm not sure, but don't the governor and mayors and some of the executives within the state have the ability to kind of bypass some of the steps to criminalize behaviors in a way that they would not if there wasn't an emergency declaration? They do, but there's still constitutional, U.S. constitutional scrutiny on sure. those orders. and we'll get into that. Right. But, I mean, they have the ability to kind of jump to leapfrog right. a process to, to, I mean, generally that so we don't have looting and gouging and other things that would lead to hysteria, but they have pretty broad powers when there's an emergency declaration. Especially if they limit those powers to a certain amount of time. And part of the craziness of this order is the order was only for 30 days. I think that having heard your conversation with Roar Allegrini and others, we're not going to be done by April 21st yeah. at 11.59. Right. So what's going to happen is we're going to get an amendment to this executive order or something else that's going to extend it. And it's fascinating because as these arguments are being made and evaluated, part of the argument is this is just a limit. It's a limited incursion upon your rights when the truth is it's going to be extended. A limited incursion on your constitutional rights. Because if you agree or disagree with, with the abortion debate, Roe versus Wade and progeny have said that is a limited constitutional right to have an abortion. So I think it's important because I was reading some articles knowing you were coming on today discussing this. And even I, because the discussion in the media is so out there, forgets that as the law sits right now, there's a constitutional right to an abortion in a non-viable situation. You can argue all those things as you want, but that's just generally as the law sits. And I also found it interesting that Paxton took a hard line on some cities that wanted to say that gun stores were non I mean, right outside my office, Nagel's Gun Store has car service right now, and they have a line out the door. Those people should not be there. I mean, guns aside, but they are in small groups of people that we should be avoiding. And Paxton took a line and said, county cities, those are essential services to the extent you can't close them because if there's a constitutional right, but in the abortion context, a different standpoint. So right. let's get back on track. 23rd Paxton, wait, 22nd Abbott weighs in, 
23rd. Paxton weighs in 24th. Medical board weighs in. Medical board weighs in 25th. The lawsuit's filed. And it's uh, some healthcare providers, specifically Robin Wallace, as well as different versions of Planned Parenthood across the state of Texas. And what they sought was a temporary restraining order on this executive order just to stop it. And there was also a request for a preliminary injunction. So they filed it in the Western District. And as you well know, you're not necessarily sure who you're going to get. And it's, it's interesting to me that the judge that ended up taking up this is Judge Yackel who has previously dealt with the Hellerstead case, which is about three years ago. So Judge Yackel, um, as you said earlier, is an appointee of um, a Republican, but is savvy and understands this area of the law as well as anyone because it's been briefed and it's been in his court and he's heard the testimony. He knows what's going on. So they present this to Judge Yackel and Judge Yackel, uh, not trying to read too much into him, although I've had some incredible experience with him, is wanting to gather information because with a temporary restraining order, what they're essentially trying to do is trying to prevent this executive order from going, going into effect. So they're trying to stop it, which means that abortion would have been legal um, as of March 25th, 2020. And for our non-legal listeners, it kind of just means the judge is going to say, hey, I'm going to say no on this until we have seven days or whatever amount of time to get more evidence, consider more of the law, consider more of the testimony. So it's just a judge saying, let's put pause on this until I have a chance to review everything. Is that fair? Right. That was the idea. Okay. It was it was sort of a timeout, but he knew the stakes. So he also said, why don't we do this? Why don't we have a teleconference? So he ordered a teleconference on March 26th. So we we're less than 24 hours later. And he allowed the plaintiffs as well as the representatives of the defendants to participate. And he also said to the state, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to file a written response to this motion. Well, he heard the arguments. He gave them an opportunity to brief this. And he determined on March the 30th, 2020, under certain rules of uh, federal procedure, that the plaintiffs has shown a likelihood of success on the merits. And what that means is, essentially, the executive order, which was issued by the, no, by the governor, violates the plaintiff's 14th Amendment rights, which are derived from the Bill of Rights, the same Bill of Rights which you've referenced in respect to Nagel's gun store and the essential nature of buying weapons and bullets in the fine state of Texas. 14th uh, essentially said, hey, states, y'all have to follow the federal. I mean, there was a debate at some point, but the 14th said, no, we're incorporating all the states have to follow them too. Right. And within the 14th, there was this concept of due process, which meant that in order for you to infringe upon the rights, you had to show certain things. And um, one of the things that Judge Yackel obviously looked at is the idea of pre-fetal viability abortions, which are abortions which take place before 10 weeks. And what he looked at in his order was, you are, in essence, banning those abortions. And I, I know that you're making this argument about resources, which is a, which is a spurious, ineffectual argument because 
medication abortions don't use N95 masks. They don't use the resources of healthcare facilities because they're done in clinics outside of that universe. So the original argument that Abbott made about we don't want to uh, divert resources from these hospitals and from the provision of care was, was just not applicable. But what Yackel looked at is simply following precedent. And the precedent was that the Supreme Court of the United States did not permit a ban on pre-fetal viability cases. And then he threw in a funny line. And if you've been in front of him, you would consider it funny. I mean, most people don't. But he wrote in his order, this court will not speculate on whether the Supreme Court included a silent except in a national emergency, uh, which I thought was funny. And it basically shows, okay, I know what you're doing. I know you're taking a legitimate argument about resources, and you're trying to expand this to include something that you don't like, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't follow that. So he grants a TRO as of March 25th and essentially says, hey, state of Texas, if you're trying to enforce this, you can't do it. He then said, you know, if you want to come back here and have further arguments, I'll certainly do it. But at least until April the 13th, 2020, this is the ruling and abortions in the state of Texas, all abortions, were still viable and legal. Well, which is also just such a strange area in that a knee surgery is not a protected constitutional right. It's not. It's just a strange thing. I mean, I I was... And I learned it in law school, and I learned it since, and I read occasionally. But you just forget when the discussion is had in the news, it is murder or medical procedure. There's, It's never framed in terms of our courts have decided it's a protected constitutional right. right. And I feel like that, you know, from all of our constitutionalist friends that disagree with it, that's the place you have to start with in that discussion. Maybe it's not a good place to start, but I feel like to have an honest discussion, you got to start in that the law has decided that's protected. That's what makes this such a strange issue because, yes, the the attorney general is saying it's a non-essential, but the courts are saying we don't care because we've already decided it's a protected constitutional right. Right. So Yackel um, did what Yackel did, and the state of Texas appealed it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which for listeners who maybe don't know, that's – the Federal Court of Appeals, it covers Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. It is every federal court case goes to the trial level, district court, and then it can go up to the Fifth Circuit. Fifth Circuit sits in Louisiana normally, and they're, they're, they're the stop between trial court and the, the U.S. Supreme Court everybody knows about. So it goes to the Fifth Circuit, which is historically a very conservative-leaning court. Correct. And when did they hear it? What were the arguments? What were the decisions? March 31st, 2020. So... Two days ago, um, the Fifth Circuit, a panel of three, hears the arguments and essentially decides, well, we've heard what the arguments are from the state and from these plaintiffs, and we are going to decide to go back to the executive order and allow that to continue without any limitation 
But we do want additional briefing from both sides. And even as we speak, this is April the 2nd, they were requesting hearings and briefing as of yesterday morning at 8 a.m. The state had a reply of 8 p.m. yesterday. And then there's responses. There are responses due tonight at 8 p.m. So... In essence, the state argued that this is a legitimate concern. Uh, We are able to identify how the resources of this state would be taken away from legitimate health care provision to patients who are in dire straits, life-threatening conditions, Um, the resources necessary to accommodate and sustain those patients um, are directly connected to what these abortion clinics are doing. And as such, we need to prevent them from performing this procedure or performing these procedures. And elective abortion is not an absolute right, which has been guaranteed by the Constitution, especially in light of the current public health emergency. Did they have any medical testimony or medical support behind their argument that it would uh, limit or reduce or strain resources? No. Not even like a paid, this guy's always their go-to? No, there is information provided to them. Um, Some of it was cursory. But... There is nothing, there was nothing provided to them that connected the direct impact of abortion clinics in the state of Texas during this 30 days and how it would impact uh, the provision of health care to victims of COVID-19. It just wasn't done because it doesn't exist. Yeah. There, there are some self-serving comments that were made and some arguments that were made, but it was really... It was as expected. It was the Fifth Circuit panel of three is looking at this. We fully expect that now that the Fifth Circuit's weighed in, there will be an appeal by um, the plaintiffs in the plaintiffs that filed the, the TRO with Judge Yackel. They will appeal to an en banc consideration that will ultimately be upheld, meaning the panel decision will be upheld. And then we will have an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, which is a situation that we found ourselves in with uh, the Hellerstadt case. So, in essence, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, is going to have the opportunity to hear this and to decide whether we're going to, as a uh, tech, as a full blown U.S. Supreme Court, hear this now. There are other cases floating around, and none of this happens in a vacuum, and none of this um, can be attributed to any one person. But currently, there were challenges as of last Monday from Alabama, Iowa, and Oklahoma following this same rationale, meaning there are limited resources, and abortion care is non-essential, and it will limit these resources. And as such, we need to stop it. We need to ban abortion. It seems to match up with the states that don't have stay-at-home orders. Right. Among, <laughs> right. Among other things. We're not uh, political. We're, we're not. We're yeah. not. But um, 
Yeah, you can be. But Tiger one. King was on one of those. I think he was in Oklahoma. But anyway. Uh, hey, the guy with the no legs is from my hometown and lives there currently. So I feel like I have a Tiger King connection. I bet you may have. Hey, and if you're that. listening, come on. I mean, come on to the show. We need to hear more. It's only seven episodes. Yeah. It, well, it's, it's intoxicating. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's sort of a strange procedure in that Yakel says, let's put it on hold. I need more. Goes up to the court of appeals and they said, "Nope, put it back. We need more." Right, and we're now in this position of everybody's briefing and getting the more that they need so that they can make a final determination. Right, and we're going to get a determination. We we think either tomorrow or early next week, but the determination is going to be temporary. Meaning, we know that there is going to be an appeal, but in the short term, what it means is that. Next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, abortions will be banned in the state of Texas because they're not considered essential medical care. Which uh, I think was it maybe the Texas Tribune or one of those had an article about this and they gave some sort of real life examples because, again, the media, I mean, it's, I'm not downplaying the media, but they distill these arguments to such non-human examples. But this was an example of a woman who had some sort of prolapse and she, her life was not in danger. She was probably not carrying a viable fetus at that point, but it wasn't totally sure. But in 99% of the the times, the doctor would say this, you know, we need to terminate your pregnancy. It's not going to work out at the end of the day. And she no longer can do anything that she needs done for her body in that situation without being a criminal or the doctor being a criminal. And, you know, they lined out some real life examples of how this is affecting people today. And it's not the, it's not what is presented in the media as, or the political, you know, propaganda either. So these are real life people that are being affected by this, that need it, that anybody, wherever they stand on this issue is probably going to look at them and go, yeah, of course, that's not this elective procedure that we're against. That's a medical need. But because it also includes that, they're caught up in this political fight. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there are going to be hundreds of examples of women who, within this 30 days, go from medical or medicine abortions, which are typically handled in clinics, which have an incredibly low rate of problems of any sort, to later term abortions where there are numerous problems available and there are numerous situations where they may in fact need the healthcare resources that we're trying to protect. There's also really a common sense aspect of this. And the common sense aspect is this. If you are banning abortion for these women, they are ultimately going to have a child in a hospital setting, which means they're going to have to go through prenatal care. They're going to have to ultimately have that child in a setting that incorporates a doctor and a nurse And unless it's a midwife, it's going to happen in a facility. Those are the types of beds that I thought the executive order was trying to protect. But realistically, this example and others reveal that at least the press release and the interpretations in the press release show 
that this really isn't about hospital resources. It's not about the masks or respirators because these laws or this executive order and its interpretation in effect include, necessarily include the use of that equipment, which you're trying to, to keep away from certain populations. With medication abortions, these patients aren't going to the hospital. They're going to the clinic. And when you say medication abortions, you mean the, the, basically the, the, there's an, a, it's not plan B, it's, right. it's a pill that is inserted or whatever, however it's taken, and people then go home. So they're administered in a clinic setting, but they typically go home, and it's a non-hospital setting, and they don't go through surgery, and they don't have anesthesia and those types of things. You take a medication, um, typically methadone. you go home, you coordinate with the clinic, you tell the clinic your symptoms, you come back, you follow up, and in most of those patients... It works. And there's no question those are administered at a point in the pregnancy when really it seems kind of without argument that it's a non-viable fetus. Right. Because there's a lot of debate on what was viable when Roe versus Wade was as opposed to today. But those um, medication abortions are not even available in that sort of gray area of what is viability, right? Right. And that's, I mean, I think that's that's important for everyone to, to consider because... If you look at Yackel's order and you look at what he's talking about, he, he focuses on this pre-fetal viability, which is 10 weeks. But abortions in Texas are permitted far beyond that. And I think it's up to 20, 21 weeks at this point. But it's something where, as you've just pointed out, there's no question that it still passes United States Supreme Court scrutiny. And there's no question from a medical standpoint that these fetuses are not viable at that point. All right. This is kind of heavy stuff. It is. I mean, it we're is. in a heavy time right now. And I went to I went to law school with one of kind of the leading figures in the um, pro-life slash anti-abortion movement. And Bradley, if you're listening, you're welcome to come on and, and discuss with us. We'd love to have you on. And I don't want this to be political, but this is going on behind the scenes. And I'm sure some people would say this is political opportunism and other people might say this is exactly where we should be drawing these lines in this type of environment. Whatever it is, it is, and the courts are going to flesh out. But thank you for talking about this. I want to sort of trend over to something maybe a little more cute and fuzzy sure, and lighthearted, sure. depending at what part of the zoo you're in. Right. Um, you're a board member on the zoo. Um, I love our zoo. Uh, Lindsay and I are, I don't know what level, one of these things where – we're not season pass members, but we're not the exalted as though you are. Um, but we have tickets to everything. So we go, we'll go just take a walk there sometimes. Uh, lots of exciting things happen in the zoo. You have a new leader. He's not that new, but he's new-ish. Um, right, and right. he's sort of transformational in the zoo, the zoo world. So talk to me about some of the things that are happening at the zoo. Sure. Um, and these were events, obviously, which were taking place or have been planned for the last few years. And the new leadership is a guy named Tim Morrow. Tim is exceptional because Tim looks at this world from many different viewpoints. But the first viewpoint he looks at is education is really important. And Tim is one of the driving forces behind the Will Smith Zoo School, which is right up the hill from the zoo. 
which um, I think is just an exceptional opportunity. Not for, the wild, wild west Will Smith. Print, no, Fresh Prince. No, it's now it. Men in black. It's it's not the guy who saved the world every summer for about three or four <laughs> before he married. Okay, Jada. so the Will Smith School is a it's a zoo preschool basically, right? Yeah, and it's it's a it's a great school in that you have these students and they spend a lot of time outside, and you're about to to experience this. I've experienced it. I have a child who loves to be outside, but that's contrary to how most children are educated. So this concept is great. And my wife and I have friends who send their children there and they love it. And the school is the old um, Sunset Cottage, uh, Dela White's venture up the hill. And they've done a fantastic job with it. And it's one of those things where I think Tim and other board members and executive committee looked at that opportunity and ran with it. And uh, with some of the partners, we've made it work. But I think there's also the idea of San Antonio, um, despite its its flaws, is a city that incorporates almost 2 million people at this point. And as such, you should have a world-class zoo. And I think one of Tim's um, focuses and one of his goals is to transform this zoo into a world-class zoo. And that means that he has zoologists and scientists within the system who are going all over the world, who are going to South America, who are going to Europe, who are meeting with other zoologists, who are trying to gather information as to how to do that. But from a, um, a concrete and mortar standpoint, it means that we're trying to change certain exhibits, give our visitors a sense of what a natural habitat looks like. Uh, some of you have been to the zoos in San Diego, or you've been to other zoos, um, I think Berlin, for instance, and you've seen habitat where you're actually in the habitat. And I think that's one of the goals of our zoo, even in the limited space that we have. But we want to be able, we want children to be able specifically to go into these venues and have a sense of what it's like for these animals to be out in the wild. And I think there's some fantastic ideas. There's the jaguar uh, reach. There's some of the stuff that's going on with um, the giraffes and other of uh, the larger mammals, other African mammals. But it's one of those things where if you see it, and I can specifically point to uh, San Diego in parts of the San Diego zoo system, if you see those animals roaming in something that is akin to their natural habitat, it gives you a much different view of what you believe those animals are like. It's, it's, there's nothing like seeing a big cat roaming a prairie. And we want to provide instances where our audience gets to see that. Because I think that's important, especially as the natural habitat for many of these animals is disappearing. And because of you, I had the opportunity to apply for the board. <clears throat> Didn't make the cut, but, you know, who's keeping count? Whatever. It happens sometimes. But I got to meet with some of the other guys on the board, and, and, and they called it the San Antonio Zoological Society. And I thought, that's got some pretty bad connotations. And they went on to explain it's exactly what it sounds like. These societies were formed by wealthy big game hunters back in the day. And sort of like a lot of nonprofits, they're trying to move away from the historical 
connotations or associations. So now they moved to conservation and education. And one of my friends was in a town, in town separate and apart from our discussions and my discussions with the zoo board guys. And we went and did a feed the turtles and feed the uh, hippos. And they told me that part of what they do is they have geneticists in the zoos who will say our female hippo and the male hippo from Oklahoma City or Tampa or wherever, they're perfect matches for this hybrid vigor or whatever you call it. Like they've got really good genetics. They'll make a good match. So they are sharing animals to make sure that they can basically continue the existence of these species. How, how much of a focus at the San Antonio Zoo is sort of conservation now? Well, it has to be. And I think, I mean, we all have a sense of the zoo that's based upon our experiences as children, but the reality of the zoo and the zoo business is conservation and the sharing of information like you've just um, identified. I mean, there are species of animals that unfortunately are being maintained because of zoos. That is how it's going to happen. So we have... And I'll say zoologists because I love that term. We have zoologists that travel the world and talk to other zoos and share information and, and share things that those zoos need and we all need to continue certain species and to make this process as effective as possible in light of our circumstance and our circumstances, their natural habitat is disappearing in many ways it's disappearing and we can't change that, but we can do whatever we can as stewards of this country stewards of this planet to try and maintain this for our children so that they'll have a sense of these things. And if that means that you fly someone to South America and that person spends six, eight weeks in the Orinoco trying to figure out certain things so that he can share that information with um, zoologists and zoos across the nation, then you do it. And that's what's being done. But it's also being done within the limitations of a nonprofit. And the zoo is driven by us. It's driven by the citizens of San Antonio. There's, there's remarkably little support from certain um, sites, from certain centers, which means that the zoo or the zoological foundation is driven by people, which means that we need people to walk through the doors and to bar, buy the merchandise. So what does that mean right now? Where the zoo's closed. Yeah. There's a crisis. There's an absolute crisis where we're looking not only at you know, our human family, which is the people that worked for us, but we're also looking at how do we continue to maintain these services? How do we set up a, a new and better hospital system for our zoo? How do we continue the growth with the Jaguars? How do we finish the Africa Live exhibit? Exactly. All those other things that were going on. And we're sitting here thinking, okay, We've got these fantastic plans, and most of the zoo plans, of course, drop on or about the beginning of spring break, which happens to be when everything starts shutting down. <laughs> so you've got the opening of Starbucks, which was supposed to be part one, I guess part two, 
part one was the the opening of uh, um, the Kitty Park, uh, the soft opening. Oh yeah, the Kitty Park's there now. Yeah, uh, the Broadway time. Kitty Park has been taken down and moved onto the zoo. Better and all the equipment works. Just saying, and there aren't any carnies. Less rusty. Yeah. Uh, Again, yes, but you might want to get that tetanus shot anyway. But anyway, you had these steps being made, and then this drops. So we're in a situation right now where we are reaching out to everyone uh, because you can't go there. And if you have the means to support the zoo, and I know it's probably not on your, your highest list of priorities, but the reality is we need your support. And we're out there and we're talking to people and we're trying to get your support because I think it is a crisis. I won't call it an existential crisis, but it's a crisis that's worthy of your attention and it may be worthy of your support. A lot of our city's identities are being strained as a result of all this. I mean, the San Antonio Public Theater, the zoo, um, and to support the zoo, I mean, you can join as a as a yearly member and it's not that expensive. It's what maybe two visits worth and all of a sudden you get a year's worth. Um, I'll I'll tell you, so before all this crisis happened and after you introduced me to them, I just went there with a buddy because his daughter wanted to go to the zoo. And so he booked us all these, we fed the hippos, we fed the rhinos and we fed the tortoises. And it was almost, it was almost a spiritual moment for me feeding those tortoises. I mean, they're a hundred and something years old you can sit there eye to eye with them and touch them on the head and look at them eye to eye. And I mean, I'm a kid from the country. I grew up around animals, but it is, there's something really weirdly heady about petting the animal that you're not sure if it's, if its species will continue outside of these habitats now. Right. You know, and another thing I like to to point out is we still all kind of have this belief that zoos are kind of still tiger king. I mean, there was a time when zoos made their money selling animals and, and they were in the breeding thing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, those are long days gone, but zoos kind of for a long time had a very bad feel to them, almost a blackfish or blackfin, whatever it was, blackfish. SeaWorld thing. Yeah, I mean, but after meeting with the board members that you introduced me to and going as much as I've gone since then, I mean, it's it's a very different feel. It feels like school when you're there and you do any of the private programs and it is going to be, unfortunately, hopefully not, but unfortunately, one again going to be one of the only ways that people get to see ecosystems that no longer exist in 50 or 100 years, unless we change the way we're doing things, and I hope we do. I hope we do, too. But I think, I think the importance of the zoo to people my age, I'm in my mid-50s, people your age, you're approaching 40, and our children, is that it gives all of us a perspective that we wouldn't ordinarily have. Now, certainly I have friends who have been on safari and all these other things, but that's different. And I want to have access to these systems, to these exhibits, because I want to think about those things. And I think it may manage my expectations and manage my beliefs if I see those things and I take a pause because it does make me think about what's going on in South America or, or Sub-Saharan Africa. And as complicated as our lives are and focused as our lives are in our issues, many of these things are related. And I think we all need to 
support those things that we can that allow us to continue to have a much more open perspective on this world because it can only help us. Join the zoo. I don't know. You Google San Antonio Zoo. I don't know it as I sit here, but everybody can afford $50. If, if, you, if you've still got your job, you can afford $50 to support something you want to be there when we come out of the other side of this. And if you've lost your job, God bless you. When you get another job, then you can. But things like the San Antonio Zoo, things like the San Antonio Public Theater, I mean, they are having existential crises right. as well as just financial crisis. I mean, those animals are a lot of money to feed. If you've watched Tiger King, they're somewhere between three and $10,000 a year per big cat, whether you're a Doc Antle guy or a Joe Exotic guy. It just depends what, what you're into. That's a lot of roadkill. I know. Did you see the thing about the pizza? I did. I mean, come on. Yeah, I didn't want that. I didn't want that. <laughs> Okay, so that about does it for this episode. Brian, thank you for being on here. Next time you're on, we'll have a full, you know what, I'm going to guess. Next time you're on, we'll probably have a whole new fight between Planned Parenthood and the state of Texas. So we'll talk about that. But it's an interesting thing to get some color commentary on the backside of what's going on, what the arguments are. And it's something that affects us day to day in the middle of this. Right. And uh, thank you for having me. I mean, it was amazing for you to demonstrate your ignorance the way you did about the location of Duke, but I'm never, ever underwhelmed by people anymore. I mean, it's definitely in North Carolina. I know this. I just don't want to admit that I know this. It is in North Carolina, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's this episode of Alamo Hour. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian Stewart, and all of your Duke Blue Devil you know, inclinations and Deerfield love, but San Antonio still loves you. Our next episode, um, we are planning on having somebody else here talking about the city's response to um, COVID and coronavirus and the shutdown and what's next for the city. My guest wish list continues. My top three have not changed. Coach Pop, uh, Robert Rivard, and I'm a huge Rorschach fan of, 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 of Jackie Earl Haley's doing, so I would love to have him on. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Was that number four? Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.